0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, new zero trust guidance from OMB isn't just guidance. Agencies
1: will have to take action on this, uh, and they will have CISA and OMB breathing down their down necks.
0: The end of the pandemic isn't the end of your agency's supply chain worries.
2: We're always going to be faced with these crises. You know, There's always going to be an event that's going to disrupt our lives. And to the extent that Getting goods and services down to the end user is disrupted by that event. I think agencies are starting to think about that.
3: And an automation business case at Veterans Affairs. We ran a pilot uh, that started in December uh, for supplemental claims around hypertension. And the early indications are for those particular claims that we've piloted so far, instead of the traditional 100 plus days it takes to process claims, we've gotten that down to roughly about two to three days.
0: It's Wednesday, January 26, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The final edition of Guidance on Zero Trust is out today from the Office of Management and Budget. John Hewitt-Jones is covering it at fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What's the major takeaway or takeaways from this new release from OMB today? Welcome. Welcome.
1: Hi, Francis. Yes, well, this uh, this final memorandum sets out uh, some specific zero trust security goals for agencies that will need to be implemented by the end of fiscal year 2024. Uh, sort of broadly speaking, they're in five separate areas, looking at identity, devices, networks, applications and workloads and data, and sort of drilling it down a little bit into the detail. I think some of the chatting to a few people this morning, um, some of the most significant uh, um, aspects of, of this final final draft seem to be the multi-factor authentication um, and the encryption of, uh, of all DNS requests and HTTP traffic. Those two sort of requirements, building on um, uh, on, uh, on on a mandate that we've we've seen before in the in the draft that was previously released in September, um, but really kind of um, yeah, r- really really sort of speeding um, uh, pushing pushing agencies to adopt these measures.
0: Is this a vision document, John, where OMB, uh, Shalanda Young writing this memo saying this is where we want to go or are there action items here too where agencies have to do specific things and hit specific marks?
1: It's a vision. It's a vision document uh, uh, for sure, but there are some sort of tangible, concrete measures here, Francis. Um, you know, we, we look at some of the some of the concrete deadlines that are included. Um, you know, agencies will have sixty days following the publication of this document to submit a plan for review to CISA uh, and to OMB. Um, they will have uh, just thirty days um, uh, to designate and identify a zero trust strategy implementation lead. So that's really sort of ramping up. It's responsibility uh, identifying who is responsible for for zero trust implementation within each each agency, um, and then also uh, yeah a few other a few other sort of concrete deadlines that are worth noting. Um, agencies will have 120 days um, for their chief data officers to develop categories for the most sensitive documents that agencies hold, which I think. Uh, you know that, that really is ramping up security measures within agencies, ensuring or, or trying to crack down on um, on who can access who has accurate access to which documents, which is which is important to consider.
0: What is different here, John, uh, about what OMB expects agencies to do than they've been doing already? You and I have conversations with uh, CIOs, CISOs, CTOs, and so on across agencies. And when we talk about zero trust, a lot of them say, well, we're already starting on this path. So I wonder what's different here about what the expectations will be than what some agencies may have already been doing before.
1: I think here, Francis, uh, it's clearly the timeline. Um, I think especially that thirty-day timeline stood out to me. The agencies will have to take action on this, uh, and they will have CISA and OMB breathing down their their necks, um, uh, checking in that they've actually checking that they've been making progress um, and and implementing these um, and kind of fast-tracking the move to zero trust. Um, that's that seems to be the you know the, one of the biggest takeaways here, and then also just the granularity. You know, really making sure you know, that, that each DNS request, that HTTP HTTP traffic is, is encrypted. Um, that each you know individual application uh, on, on on agency systems is is encrypted. Um, this is uh, it, it, this document. Uh, which sums you know, thirty pages really spells out in detail the um, uh, the identi- the, uh, the requirements that agencies will have to um, adhere to when it comes to you know identity systems um, and really locking down their networks.
0: One passage from this uh, 30-some page document is this: Transitioning to a zero-trust architecture won't be a quick or easy task for an enterprise as complex and technologically diverse as the federal government. The strategy set forth in this memorandum is designed to reduce uncertainty and outline a common path toward implementing. EO 14028 by updating and strengthening information security norms throughout the federal enterprise. What I didn't see among all of the detail here is what OMB perceives its role to be as far as uh, support, oversight, accountability, and so on. Do we have any sense of what we think that will look like yet, John?
1: I, I think the the, the answer, Francis, that's that's still still sort of iterating. This it, it will become uh, increasingly clear. What we do know is that CISA will play a you know a significant role in in enforcing this um, at a very basic level, backing up you know that the executive the cyber executive order in May last year made it clear that uh, you know the, the the president the Biden administration expect agencies to develop uh, and and fast track you know implement zero trust architecture, and CISA will really be. you know, making sure this um that they will be in part responsible for in- for enforcing this um so i think uh sort of to give you a slightly sort of weasel answer <laughs> we're still, we're still uh, uh uh it's still becoming clear the role that omb will play but um we, we do know that sister will be will be playing you know more, more of the enforcement role here
0: it's not a weasel answer if it's the right answer john hewitt jones thanks very much thanks francis you can read more about the zero trust guidance and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. The Department of Health and Human Services is one of the agencies taking a fresh look at the supply chain of items it needs and citizens across the country need the end of the pandemic if it comes isn't the end of the conversation about supply chains for federal agencies pat Tamborino's vice president of logistics at lmi former chief of staff in the office of the undersecretary of defense for personnel and readiness pat it's great to see you again thanks for coming on the program i think there's a perception that the supply chain issues that are hitting you know grocery stores and the uh the automotive industry and all of that have not really impacted federal agencies that much yet if that's the case what can agencies do to make sure it stays that way? Welcome, Pat.
2: Hey, Francis. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I would have said 18 months ago, if you would have asked anybody what's a supply chain, you know, they would have stared at you. I can tell you, supply chain is now dinner table conversation in my house because. When, when grandma cannot find the toy she wants for her grandbabies, and the answer she gets, it's the supply chain, she's now interested. Mm-hmm. What is that? What does that mean? So I think it's really topical. And and I think there's an evolution. When I manage major programs in the Department of Defense, we always thought about logistics, of which supply chain is part of. But we thought about it. as an element off to the side, we were always worried about design and production and delivery and meeting budgets, but then you have to support the end item. I would admit, at least for me, that wasn't my primary point of of focus. And I think that's what's changing now uh, in the the federal agencies, that it's about readiness. And if we're going to be ready to go do whatever the agency mission whatever the agency's mission is supply chain is part of it uh, if we witness events that are unfolding in the world today we have forward deployed forces they need the supply chain to work for them their their equipment has to be there the fuel has to be there um, all those other impacts have to be, be be thought of so i think the conversation is shifting That supply chain is integral to readiness, and we need to start to think about it. And and I see some really important things like Department of Commerce released an RFI yesterday or the day before yesterday. Um, Let's talk about the state of the semiconductor industry uh, in the nationwide. Car manufacturers can't run their production lines because they don't have semiconductors. Maybe your laptop, you can't get a new laptop because you can't get a semiconductor. That's what we as citizens might see. Other agencies are seeing, well, I can't field a major weapon system, or I can't do repair and replacement because I can't get a semiconductor, or I can't get a critical rare earth mineral that I need. Um, so I think supply chain and industrial-based conversations are becoming more and more topical. And I think as long as government officials cast it into... I need to be cognizant of this for future readiness, we're going to be okay.
0: Readiness of the mission deliverers is something that obviously in the Defense Department was coin of the realm. You talked about it all the time. Right. You hear about it everywhere. Uniformed uh, right. civilian, doesn't matter. It's very right. top of mind. Do you think it would be useful for civilian agencies to start to think about the way that they're delivering on mission from the same point of view? I'm not sure it's the same in the civilian agencies as it is in DOD.
2: Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, I see um, glimmers of that because w- when I talk to, to to colleagues in the federal space or potential clients, I always talk to them, what kind of outcome do you want to achieve? You, you have a mission statement. But what outcome do you want to achieve? And, and the outcome is always something about timely delivery of goods and services to the citizens of the United States. That's readiness. You know, if you think about um, the pandemic response, what was critical in the pandemic response? The, 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 the pharmaceutical has got to go from the manufacturer to the shipper down to Main Street America, and it's got to go into a distribution hub. And, and we have to get it in, you know, to the citizens. That's a readiness problem. I think people start to see that. Okay, what's the outcome I want to achieve? It's about being ready to deliver goods and services. And I think that conversation um, witnessed the Commerce Department, the Semiconductor RFI. Um, I think in Health and Human Services, they're totally focused on pharmaceutical distribution as a key outcome. I think it's getting there. Um, and I, and I think, um, you can look at how the defense department does it. I think there's a lot of great lessons learned. And I think, um, there's a lot of crosstalk amongst the agencies now.
0: There's probably places all over the civilian agencies that I'm not thinking of. And as you were making some of those references, I think about FEMA, that's always got to be prepared for the next thing. And there are other, there are other spots what I wonder about is whether the emphasis on scale of readiness ha- has really been uh, a priority over the past, oh well, geez, five to ten years, and thinking what do we need to be ready for the next five to ten years?
2: Yeah, I think I think if there's any goodness, and I put that in quotes, to the <laughs> pandemic because there's really nothing good about
0: it. I understood
2: uh, is it's it's got us thinking about we're always going to be faced with these crises. You know, there's always going to be an event that's going to disrupt our lives. And to the extent that getting goods and services down to the end user is disrupted by that event, I think agencies are starting to think about that. You can expand it to, if it's not supply chain, what's the impact of climate change? You know, temperature swings, catastrophic events, how does that impact my ability to do my mission and be ready and i think what i'm witnessing is agencies are starting to say yeah we got to think about this as we do our mission planning because we're always going to be faced with these events now where maybe you know as i said when i started this i didn't really think about this when i was a federal employee all that much as you know what do i have to do today and what do i have to do tomorrow and now it's I think the conversation is shifting to what can we learn for what we've, what we've been through for the last two years, how does our planning have to change? Um, And, and, you know, what outcomes do we really want to think about? And I see that evolving.
0: I think it's also got people thinking about what all the potential points of failure are and what could cause those points of failure to fail. Right, Pat?
2: Yeah, it it, it is. Is if If we look at it, Look at all the things we're talking about that are legitimate points of failure. There's congestions in the port. That's a point of failure. There's a lack of um, transportation services in the form of truck drivers. That's a failure. Um, There's a lack of raw materials in some places. That's a failure. So it's not hard anymore to, to really see by just looking at the front page of the newspaper. Where are these things falling apart and how does that affect me? right? Because it, it it could migrate into, um, I need a more diverse set of suppliers, or I need a more diverse human capital strategy because there are skills that were highlighted in the supply chain crisis. I need more of those kinds of people. Where am I going to find them? I think it's shining lights into a lot of different corners now.
0: Um, final thought, you wrote a piece not long ago, and we'll put a link to it in uh, the show notes in today's uh, yeah. a, a show. Yeah. Um, but you pointed out th- the necessity to think about things in a way that we have never done so before. We've talked about it a little bit here, but you wrote about the supply chain challenge for the tablets, the chlorine tablets that people need for their swimming right. pools right. and, and, and there being a fire at one of the plants where those things are made. And yeah. it's, it, the, the words that came to my mind as I read that were situational awareness. Whatever your area of expertise is, one probably needs greater situational awareness than one has right. ever had before. Am I thinking about it the right way?
2: Right. Yeah, it, it, exactly right. Uh, it, it, I was looking for something like who would have thought of that, Yeah. right? That I couldn't, if I had a pool, I couldn't keep the chlorine levels up in the pool, because the plant that made the chlorine tablets burned down. Who would have thought of that? So I think what it says is, at least for logistics professionals, rely on those people on your team to go look, you know, backwards. Where am I getting all these materials from? And where's the critical path there? Where's the weak link? And do a lot of what ifs. What if this, that, or the other thing happens do I have a workaround or am I just at a total standstill right now? Uh, I think that's the thinking that's changing. I think logistics is now uh, an equal partner in, in every decision the government makes. Maybe it w- was always in other agencies, but I, I just feel that that's changed based on the experience of the last 24 months.
0: Lots of work ahead for the Department of Redundancy Department, Pat. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much. Have a great
0: day. You can find a link to Pat's piece about the supply chain in today's show notes, the daily scoop podcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the daily scoop podcast coming on Thursday show, the administrator of the general services administration. You have probably heard Robin Carnahan say many times, one of her priorities is to make the damn websites work. You'll learn about her plan to do it tomorrow. That daily scoop podcast debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. A new team at the Department of Veterans Affairs will work to speed up benefits claims. The goal of the new Office of Automated Benefits Delivery is to cut claims processing from about 100 days to one or two days. Charles the II is the Chief Financial Officer at the Veterans Benefits Administration. Charles, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What, do you, what are you putting in place? What are the broad strokes of administering $150 billion a year in benefits to veterans? Welcome.
3: Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Francis, for having me on the show today. It's always a pleasure to, have, to be able to talk about things that are important to veterans and how we're focused in the Veterans Benefits Administration on delivering benefits and services in a manner that honors the service of America's heroes. So we're grateful for that. Um, as we start looking at the broad spectrum of what we do here at VBA, um, you hit the nail on the head. We have a little over $150 billion. That's right, B, uh, billion and B. Uh, in terms of what we deliver uh, in benefits and services, and we put a lot of, of care in terms of how we do that. We're, we're focused on making sure we deliver benefits both timely and accurately. We also want to make sure that we uh, help prevent fraud, because uh, obviously with targets as large as $150 billion, uh, fraudsters look at us as a right target. And we also want to make sure that we have great communications venues so that veterans can get information from us and we can communicate out to them. Um, You uh, touched on something that's very uh, important and hot right now, and that's automation. Uh, Last week, uh, the secretary had a press conference where he spoke about uh, new automation uh, um, technologies and capabilities that we are embracing here in VBA so that we can process claims faster. And we see that is game-changing for us so that veterans don't have to wait as long and they're able to uh, get their their claims completed, decisions uh, determined, and where appropriate uh, payments made for those who uh, receive uh, an affirmative uh, decision from VBA.
0: The benefit to the veteran is obvious, that, that's that, that's a killer. What's the benefit, if any, tangible to the office of the CFO? How does automation in that particular case or in a broader case help you deliver better on the mission of your specific office?
3: Now, that's a great, great question. So obviously, with uh, the CFO organization, our responsibility is to make sure that we're not only overseeing the benefits that are paid out to veterans, but we also have oversight for the uh, funds that are required to run the infrastructure for VBA. So as we go forward and start looking at you know, additional contentions and start looking at the toxic exposures bills that are being considered by Congress right now, and under our current construct, any of the, the passage of any of those bills would result in the need for more people. And that means more care and feeding, uh, potentially more facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of follow me. So with the fact that we're able to automate some of those things, it may, the return on investment would be tremendous. It may mean that we may not have to have as many uh, people resources to process these claims, uh, which obviously means it's uh, a better deal for taxpayers. It certainly provides us uh, to have a, a smaller footprint uh, than we would if we have to ingest more people to handle more uh, claims that we anticipate coming from past legislation. Uh, so all around, I think it's a, a very good deal um, for the country and certainly a very good deal for veterans.
0: Is there a way to quantify the potential of a particular automation exercise? Like you talked about the yeah. the hypertension one. W- sure. Were you able to kind of predict or war game up front what you think this is going to do for us uh, uh, in in any measure Uh, or are you just thinking this, we think this will uh, have a lot of potential and we'll explore it and see the results that we get?
3: Yeah, because we're running the pilot, we're using this as our proof of concept. Mm -hmm. So, we certainly don't want to speculate in terms of what we think may happen long-term. But again, in these early uh, handful of claims that we've run through uh, this new automated process, again, going down from 100 plus days down to three days, is phenomenal. And you can, you know, trying to do some back of the math, uh, back of the envelope math on that and say, okay, if we're taking X number of people and using them, it, takes this much time, this much energy, and, and that those obviously equate to dollars. But I think it's a little too early for us to uh, really speculate on what the, the total impact will be. But we're very optimistic based on the early signs that we've seen from the pilot.
0: Either particularly relating to this pilot or just mm-hmm. pilots in general, how do you interpret the results sufficiently to be able to say, this looks pretty good, we're going to scale this, and then how do you decide
3: where you're going to try to scale it next? Now, that's a great question. So for us, when we try to look at how do we scale it is to making sure that the results are repeatable. Because um, we have to make sure again that we don't see one-offs, and we start getting results that are inconsistent of what we would see if if a human was touching it throughout the the process. We also want to make sure that that the uh, as we automate things, we're able to automate what's in the uh, veterans' claim file currently. So we got to make sure that we're able to ingest the information that it's uh, again accurate. Uh, again, as I said, repeatable and that the outcomes that we're getting are, are certainly consistent with we what we're seeing pre-pilot. As we start seeing those, is recognizing that we're doing one contention at a time. So we're making sure that they, we're doing the easy claims first uh, to make sure again, that we can repeat them and then we'll continue to add more contentions and then add essentially claims with multiple contentions. And that's where again, I think we'll start seeing the biggest lift.
0: The Department of Veterans Affairs broadly and VBA in particular has been the subject of modernization efforts for the last number of years. Sadly, there was yes. a lot of opportunity there a decade, 15 years ago uh, for people like yourself to make changes. What's the what was kind of the arc of the
3: modernization
0: effort across VBA right now, Charles?
3: Well, we recognize right now that uh, it's so important for us to continue to leverage technology and continue to work with our industry partners to come up with new ideas to process claims. Uh, my daughter always says to me, uh, she's 19, and she says, Dad, you have to make sure that we're doing things in the 2000s and not the 19s because you were born in the old ages." <laughs> and I laugh at her, but as I start thinking about the sentiment, she's right. We have to make sure that we're able to deliver a good customer experience for our veterans. And that means we have to do things faster and provide them with more electronic means to get to us. And that usually lends itself to modernization. Let's use the digital GI Bill. Not sure if you're familiar. We're, we're grateful for the support we receive from Congress to move forward with the digital GI Bill. And, and in the education space, we had 20 to 23 systems that we used to use in order to uh, process education claims, to work with institutions of higher learning and to provide information to Congress about education programs. 23 systems, that's a lot. And we also found that processing an original claim could take up to 24 days and a supplemental claim up to 14 days. Well, as we started looking at using a managed service which is what we're developing right now and we're leveraging technology that was already out there in industry, we're finding that we're able to process claims in three days and that we're able to provide information to students and to institutions of higher learning considerably faster, which allows our veterans to make life decisions quicker and allows them to engage with us and us with them uh, in a more uh, seamless manner. So we're finding that, again, modernizing our, our efforts is really good for veterans uh, and certainly good for us in terms of running our infrastructure.
0: And you make a great point there, Charles, because I think there's a perception, especially among folks my age, I'm in, I imagine, what would be considered at your agency, the Desert Storm Generation. Mm -hmm. You've got people that are not much older than your daughter, who are your customers. Now, I have a son that's 21. You have people who are not much older, or maybe his age. Who are your customers now? Who think sure. about the way they want to consume services, and in your case, receive benefits dramatically differently than people my age, right? So true,
3: and, and you bring up a great point. So we have different mediums by which the dinner, different generations of veterans can engage with us. We have the traditional call center, the national call center, and uh, and it's one eight hundred. 827-1000, and if any veteran picks up the phone and calls, they can get help in understanding what the status of their claim is, they can get general information about a claim, and they can engage VBA in that way. But you're right, the, 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 the newer veterans, uh, they wanna engage us electronically, so we have VA.gov. And VA.gov is basically the electronic system that you can use to process a claim and get information about veterans' benefits across the full spectrum and portfolio of our capabilities. And just yesterday, I had a briefing where VA has now an app that you can download from the Apple store and and certainly uh, for, for Android users from uh, their equivalent. And you can actually use your phone and your app device to be able to engage with VA as well. So to your point. Uh, we're making sure that we have different mediums to meet the different generations of veterans that we have so that we can enhance their customer experience and that they feel comfortable engaging with us here at, at VA.
0: So you just used that term, customer experience, and I know it's an important priority of this administration. Yes. Um, But that's not something that I honestly I would think to hear from the chief financial officer of an organization in the federal government. Why is that important enough to you that you've already talked about it two or three times in the course of this conversation, Charles? Because you have some CX rock stars at VA, Barbara Morton and others that I've talked to over the years.
3: She is phenomenal.
0: Yeah, who really really do that, but it sounds like you also consider yourself to do that as the CFO of VBA.
3: No, absolutely. So, uh, obviously, you well know as a CFO, I'm a card-carrying nerd, and and I count beans, (laughs) and I make sure the beans are right. But as a higher calling as CFO, I, I have a responsibility to be a good business partner to all of our executives who have responsibilities for delivering benefits. And I also have a responsibility to be a good ambassador on behalf of veterans, of which I am one. And it's important for me to make sure that as we're investing our resources in the operations of EVA, that we have the customer or our veterans at the center of all the decisions that we make. So as we're modernizing, it's about moving faster because it's good for customers. We talk- as we. Oh, go ahead, please. No, you finish, please. No, as we talk about making sure that we're training our staff so that they have the resources they need to do well, it's really about training them so they feel proud to deliver because when they're proud to deliver, they deliver high-quality results for our customers who are veterans. So it's very important for me, and it certainly helps drive the business uh, and and provides uh, a a foundation by which we do our financial management.
0: You talked about modernization earlier in our conversation. You laid out kind of some of the building blocks of what you see at VBA moving forward. What's your role personally and, and your team's role as the CFO shop in collaborating with the other CXOs in VBA to make
3: that modernization a reality? No, great question. So the thing that we do is to make sure that what we're spending our money on is smart. So a lot of times the role that I play, and actually it was in meetings just last week where I played this role where folks are saying, Charles, I need X number of million dollars to engage on this new initiative. My job is to ask, number one, have we done market research to make sure that what we're buying Number one, that we've done enough research to make sure we're making a smart buy. My question is also number two is what is the return on investment? Because as we are talking about these different uh, financial needs, I still have to go and engage with our our department CFO as far as the VA CFO, the Office of Management and Budget, and eventually with Congress to be able to articulate our operational requirements that turn into dollars that we're going to need. So my job is to truly be uh, almost like the EF Hutton uh, in VBA uh, I have to make sure that the, the way we spend our money is smart and it's going to yield good uh, return on investment.
0: When you talk, people listen to you or when people talk, you listen to them. Or I guess it goes both ways, Charles.
3: Oh, it absolutely goes both ways. Uh, I have something they need money, uh, <laughs> but I want to make sure that I make sure I get the money in the right hands at the right times to accomplish the right mission. So we're certainly doing a whole bunch of listening on each side of the table.
0: I want to go back to those pilot programs and in general, not specifically the one that we talked about at the beginning. Um, We talked a little bit about scaling and moving forward. How do you continue to measure success in a program like that? How do you look at the results that you get and say this worked as well as we wanted it to or we could have done a little bit better with this and we're going to tweak it and try it again?
3: That, that's a that's a great point you make there. The the two measures of success from an overarching perspective are how much time did it take, and did we maintain high quality? Mm-hmm. Those are the two overarching metrics, regardless of what pilots we're engaged in, and regardless to which business line, whether we're talking disability compensation or education, uh, or uh, loan guarantee, we always want to make sure we're delivering both timely and accurate uh, outcomes for our veterans. So those are generally the measures of success that we look at. Now, as we're modernizing, we're also looking to see, you know, what are the impacts from an FTE perspective? uh, And if we have savings in one area of VBA, how can we invest them in other areas of VBA? Uh, So we're always looking at that because obviously uh, our priorities uh, shift as new contentions uh, come on board or as we uh, find that we need to focus in another area, how we spend our resources and our FTE can shift from time to time. But again, uh, our true mark of success is, again, timeliness and quality. Uh, those are our overarching uh, measures and metrics that we follow. Charles
0: Tapp II, the Chief Financial Officer at the Veterans Benefits Administration. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming
3: on today. Now, the pleasure is mine, and I greatly appreciate the audience with you today.
0: You can read more about the work VA in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Thursday on the Daily Scoop podcast, the administrator of GSA, Robin Carnahan. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.